Hi, and welcome to the Southern Connecticut Church of Christ podcast. We've provided a collection of sermons, our midweek lessons, music, and many more tools to help you grow in your walk with God. We are living in an unprecedented and challenging time, but we invite you to listen in and be encouraged as we fight through this together. Be sure to subscribe and feel free to share this podcast with your friends and loved ones. Thanks for listening. All right. Well, amen. Good morning, everybody. It is so great to be back together again. I'll tell you, I would, I would rather look at you than my camera any day. So, you know, nobody likes the remote services, right? But it's different when you're sitting home watching it, which, by the way, it's really crazy sitting home watching yourself. I'm like my worst critic. It's like, did I just say that? Did I look that way? <laughs> but it's really, really weird doing it. It's like trying to preach to like your camera. I thought about having a studio audience of my cat and Florence, but the cat would be too annoying and Florence would just say amen through the whole thing. That's what she does. So. <laughs> Which actually wouldn't, really, wouldn't be a bad thing. That would, that would be okay. I wouldn't mind that. But it is great to be back together again. And I got to tell you, it's great to be walking. So I am... Uh, Yes. So <laughs> every, every time somebody comes over to the house, Flora says, walk for them. Show them how you can walk. So it's like, all right, look, I'm walking, I'm walking, I'm walking. I go back, I'm walking. So, but it's really been great. So I'm, I'm like 90% there, I think, but maybe another couple of months and I'll be able to do athletic things. But all the pain is gone, and uh, so it's, it was, it's been almost a year, I guess, coming up on a year soon. So I really do appreciate all of your prayers and all of your thoughts and all your concerns. So it is uh, just, it's like I got my life back in some way, so I am really grateful to be able to be here. So thank you so much. Uh, as you know, and John Odu mentioned it, we're, our theme this year is Redefine. And what we're trying to do is, is not create something new, right? We don't really need to create something new. God has done a wonderful job of giving us what we need. But we're talking about redefining what, what it really means to be a disciple, what it means to make Jesus Lord of your life, what it means to, to really worship God. We're not redefining God. God is very well defined in the Bible. Read it. You'll see it. Jesus, uh, as well, is very well defined in the Bible. We don't need to recreate God or Jesus, and we certainly don't need to, to rewrite or recreate the Bible. It's very complete in, in and of itself. But what we are trying to redefine is how we worship God. Like, are we really worshiping in truth and spirit? We talked about that last week. Are we really uh, following Jesus, you know, in, in the way that we should be doing? Are we really looking at the word and, and grasping it and absorbing it and using it the way that God intends? So those are the things that we're redefining. It's really our approach to the things that God has already defined very well. So, uh, but last week, we began a three-week series about how Jesus redefined worship. And, you know, for Jesus, as we looked at last week, it was all about worshiping in, truth, in the truth and in spirit. And we know from looking at the message last week for the, for the, in, during the Old Covenant, for the Old Testament Jews, the spirit was very much removed, as God was very much removed. And there was this hope that if we just do all these things, God's going to notice and think we're doing a great job. But it was so much more 
for Jesus. It was like, no, you've got to be in the spirit. You've got to walk with me. And so I don't even look at it like worshiping to God. It's, it's really like worshiping with God, that God is such a part of us, that it's this like, God, we want to be on this journey with you. We don't want to be apart from you. We don't want you to be light years away behind a cloud somewhere but we really want to walk with you. And so it was all about, for Jesus, worshiping in the truth and the spirit. And we know prior to Jesus, that wasn't the case. But Jesus set a new standard. So what about our worship? What should our personal worship with God look like? And what do we mean by worthy to worship? So before I get into this, Rather frightening thought for some people, worthy to worship. Let's, let's, let's explain a little bit what we mean about being worthy. Because I know what some of you are thinking right now. You're thinking, wait a minute, but this goes against the grain of everything I thought I was supposed to be. I'm not worthy to worship God. Who am I? I'm a worm. I'm a man. I'm a woman. I'm, I'm a sinner. I'm just, you know, I'm this like, you know, terrible person. I'm flawed and, and I'm not worthy to worship a worthy God. Oftentimes when we think about worthiness, we think only about the worthiness of God. Now, I'm not going to argue with you on that because God is worthy of worship, right? But there's also a worthiness that I think we should have a healthy worthiness. And so we're going to talk about that. But the, the, the reason why I think sometimes we think, oh, oh I'm not worthy to, to worship, is we look at scriptures like this. After me comes one, more powerful than I. The straps of whose sandals I'm not even worthy to stoop down and untie. So we say, well, there it is right there. Like, you know, who am I? I'm not worthy. I'm not, I can't even untie the sandals. I have no worthiness. Or we look at, at Paul's view of the same, the same notion. For I'm the least of the apostles. And I don't even deserve to be called an apostle, right? So we think, well, you know, Paul thought, man, I'm not, I don't deserve any of this. So, you know, who am I? I? I'm not worthy to worship God. But I want you to think about this. There's a really fine line between humility and self-deprecation. They're not the same thing. And I think you probably know that. So let's, let's figure out where we are with that. Self-deprecation says, I'm nothing. I have no good things. I'm a sinner. And I'm not even worthy to, to think about God, worship God, or follow Jesus. That's self-deprecation. That's just basically beating yourself up saying, you know, I'm not this, I'm not this, I'm not this, I'm not this. That's not very healthy. Humility says, compared with the goodness of God, I'm not good. I don't have all the love, the compassion, the, the empathy, the empathy, the, the, the sympathy, the, the patience of Christ. Any good thing I do have is from Christ. Any goodness in me is not self-generated. It came from, from God. My worthiness is in Christ. And even Paul said in Romans 7, nothing good lives in me. That is in my sinful nature. But I've been rescued from all of that through Christ. That's my 
paraphrased version of it. You can look it up in Romans 7, you'll find it. So he says, basically, because of my sinful nature, yeah, but, but, but Christ has, has fixed that. God res Christ rescued me from that. Because of grace, because of mercy, and because of the love of Christ, we have been made worthy to worship. So yes, in your own sinful nature, you're not worthy. But Christ says, I'm going to fix that. I'm going to work on that with you. We've been made worthy to worship. And it's really important that we consider the depth of what that means, because it means a lot. There is a healthy worthiness that we should be striving for as we put ourselves before a holy God. So take a look at this. This is in uh, Colossians chapter 1. It's, it's what we see right here. And I know that's very small print, but you probably have your own Bibles, right? So you can look, look it up yourself. Um, eventually, we are going to get something to something you're going to have to read. It's uh, Luke 12. So if, you're, if you want to, like, stick a pin there or something, we'll get there eventually. But this is, really, this is really cool right here in Colossians. I love what Paul says here in verse 9. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we've not stopped. Am I in the right one? Yeah. Oh, you know what it is? Because I jumped. I... When I made the slide, I cut it a little bit off. We're about to get to where you are. Okay. We <laughs> it's like, wait a minute, where is he? So here, here's where I, I chopped off a verse. Here it is. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives. So that you may live a life, listen to this, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way. Bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, that you may have great endurance and patience, and giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. I love the way that reads. You know, last week we talked about worshiping in the Spirit. This now speaks to growing in that spirit. Because really, I mean, we, we should always be growing. Part of worship is, is getting strength and growing in this spirit. But I love it what, it, what he says here. So that, right? Like the reason being and, and what the net result would be. So that we live a life worthy of our relationship with God, pleasing God, right? So we want to please God. We, we, we worship God so that God is pleased. Pleasing God. Growing in faith. Growing in knowledge. A life that says we are worthy to worship. We are worthy to approach the throne of a holy God. That's not always easy. In fact, I dare say most of the time that's quite difficult. Worshiping God in the spirit and in truth is not an easy task. In fact, most times it's a battle. Right? We're fighting. To try, to, to, try to, to, to worship God in truth and spirit and, and present ourselves in a proper way. When Paul was in a Philippian jail, in the midst of his battle, he says this, Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. And I love what he says there. It's like, whatever happens. Now, his situation was dire, 
But he wasn't the only one. I mean, even though they were the people to whom he's writing were not in prison, they were still facing some really big challenges in life as a result of their faith and their discipleship. So Paul's like, look, you know, whatever happens to me, whatever happens to you, whatever happens to any of us, whatever we face in life, we still live our lives in a manner that reflects a worthiness to worship, a sincerity to worship. So let's get into that. What does worthy to worship look like? How did Jesus see it? You know, when you, when you look at the Beatitudes in Matthew 5, we're not going to do it right now, but when we look at the Beatitudes in, in Matthew 5, there's a, there's a really consistent approach that Jesus has, and there's a reason why he wrote that. But if you go back and you look, it's very interesting. Eight times Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, but I tell you, right? You have always thought it was this, but I'm saying this. Do you see what he's doing? He's redefining. See, I'm not just making this redefining thing up. He's redefining. And if you go back and you look at all the things where he says, you thought it was this, but I'm saying it was this. You, you heard it was this, but, but now I'm saying it's this. When you look back at all those things, he, he's really redefining their worship. He says, this is what it means to put yourself before a holy God. Forget about what you thought. I'm, I'm rewriting the script of what it means to really worship God in the truth and in the spirit. So he goes back over this, and he goes on to redefine practical worship. So I encourage you this week, this will be a good quiet time, go back and look at it and say, wow, what, what did Jesus say was this but is now this? It's a really interesting study. But what were the things that were most important to him. When Jesus said, hey, we need to rewrite the script on this, what were the, the things that he thought, let's start here? There's three things we're going to talk about. And the first one is this. I had a really time, hard time trying to work with this slide, so it's at the bottom there. Okay, so it says, no idols. I know it's a little cryptic there, but you, could, you, you figured it out, right? Okay, so no idols. That's the first thing that Jesus, I think, had on his mind that we need to deal with if we're going to worship in the truth and in spirit. So what is an idol? Well, I think the easiest way to describe it is an object of worship. Something that gets most of your attention, most of your thoughts, most of your focus. Maybe in some cases depending on what it may be, most of your resources. But in all cases, in all cases, an idol gets that part of your heart that was meant for God. I want that to settle in for a moment. It gets that part of your heart. Now, I know there's a lot of things that are vying for our attention. But it's that part of your heart that is reserved for worship to God, with God. But maybe that gets messed up a little bit. That's an idol. And God dealt with it all the time in the Old Testament. Last Sunday, we looked at a scripture in 2 Kings 17, where God repeatedly said, do not worship anybody or anything before me. Worship me only. No other gods. You remember that? And so, you know, and God repeated it like, I think, three or four times, as God often does when he wants us to get the point, right? Like one's never enough. It's like, I'll say it four more times. You might get it like we do with our kids. We're God's kids. So anyway, so he said it over and over again. But you know, it's really interesting. I stopped at, at this next verse I'm going to show you. This is what followed. God saying, 
you know, worship me and worship me only, you know, nothing else before you. This is what followed. They would not listen. This is the very next verse. They would not listen, however, but persisted in their former practices, even while these people were worshiping God. Okay, so putting themselves out there, Lord, this, this, this. They were serving their idols. To this day, their children and their grandchildren continue to do as their ancestors did. I mean, oh my gosh, that is, that's alarming. That's an impact. Even after God said, no, 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 don't, don't worship anything else. It's like, okay, yeah, yeah, great, great, great. And they went and they did the same thing. And they said to their kids and grandkids, and you know what? It kept on going. Generation, it was a generational misstep. Generation after generation after generation. It carries right through to where we are today, right into the New Testament, right into the times of Jesus. Now, what are idols? Well, for them, their idols were, were usually objects that they would project a deity onto. Like they basically literally said, God, you're there. And it could be, you know, a statue. It was a, a pole. It was a figure, whatever it might be. This practice, again, carried on. And so Jesus redefines it in terms that we can understand, because I think that's important. We're of a different generation, right? So you probably don't worship some little statue in your house. At least I hope you don't anyway. But, you know, it's probably not some little figurine or a pole or something, but I think idolatry is still very much alive and well. But Jesus wants us to make sure that, that we know that, hey, okay, maybe it's not a thing like that, but it might be something. It's less, I think, the way Jesus redefines it, it's less about an object that we project God onto. I'm about to lose this. I'm sorry. I can tell it's coming off. It's less about something that we project God onto. You still got me there? We good? Okay. All right. It's been a few weeks. I'm not used to wearing this thing. Okay. So it's less about something that we project God onto and more about something that diminishes, even cancels God. So let's take a look at that. Finally, we're at Luke 12, where I told you we were going to be. Okay, so uh, Luke 12, let's see what this, what this idol, this idolatry might possibly look like. Give me just a second. So we're at Luke 12, and uh, we're going to pick this up in verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the, inher the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Then he said to them, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Now, I know that greed is the, the targeted sin here. But he does say all kinds of greed. So apparently there's different types, different levels, different manifestations of greed. And so I, I certainly think that would include idolatry because there's certainly a greed connected with that. So what we're going to look at is a lesson, not just on the value or the quantity of something, some entity, whatever it might be, but more importantly, it's the, it's the place that it has in your life. That's the big question. It's the place that it has in your life. And so he goes on to explain himself in verse 16. He told him this parable. Parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, 
What shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, well, this is what I'll do. He has this brainstorm. You know what? I'll tear down my barns and I'll build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, self, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, be merry. But then God said to him, you fool. This very night, your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you prepared for yourself? And this is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich toward God. So let's look at the facts. You got this guy. He was wealthy, we would assume. He was very well set up. He had everything he thought he needed. Life was great. He was happy. From the little we know, though, of him, because we only know this short little story, what was his biggest concern in life? His stuff. His stuff meant everything. Oh my gosh, I've got so much stuff. It wasn't like, hmm, I've got a pretty good amount of stuff here. Let me give half of it away. Let me give a bunch of it away. Let me figure out what I need to, to be okay and, and, and I can meet the needs of others. Now that really was not his mind. It's like, man, I got so much stuff. I need bigger barns. So we go, he undergoes this big construction project just to be able to, to protect and shelter all of his stuff. Now, that brings up an important question. Is it wrong to have stuff? Is it wrong to have possessions? Is it wrong to even have a lot of stuff? A lot of possessions, right? Because I know we think about that sometimes. Oh, man, like, you know, like, is this, I have a nice house, or I have, is, is that a wrong thing? Is it wrong to have a lot, or even a nice house? Is it wrong to have a nice car? Is it wrong to have, you know, a, a, good, a good career, a good job? Is it wrong to have friends, hobbies, education, family? Is it wrong to have those things? I don't think so. Because things like this are not inherently sinful, right? They're not. They're just, they're, they're things. They're, they're, they're not inherently sinful. The problem is how much we value them. In fact, some of these things we really should value quite a bit, right? Certainly your, your family and, you know, things like that. There's nothing wrong with that. that your friends, you know, that, those are good things to value. So we should value, but the sin is the place that they have in our lives, even if and even when they're really, really good things, like your marriage, your spouse, your kids, you know, your, your friends, it's like, oh, those are like the, you know, that's like the most important thing to me. My friends are the most important thing to me. My husband, my wife, my marriage, that's the most important thing to me. Really? Is that really the most important thing to you? Think about what you just said. Is that really the most important thing? Now, look at this man here. He put all of his heart behind what was most important to him what he valued most. That was his focus. That was his joy. That was his, that was his happiness. Ultimately, that was his security, right? So as long as I've got this stuff, man, I can just kick back and relax. I'm going to be good, you know, until the day I die. I'm all set. When do things of, of any kind, whether they be inanimate or, 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 you know, alive. When, when do things become idols? 
It's an easy answer. It's a very easy answer. And I dare say, I think you, you know the answer. When they obscure your relationship with God and they occupy that part of your heart which should really belong to God alone. And you know, when, when that's the case, it doesn't end well. I mean, look at this poor guy. You know, God said, hey, look, tonight you're going to meet God. And you know what? Your, your barn's full of stuff. Ain't going to mean anything. That's how it will be with anybody who's rich toward, with, in anything, but not rich toward God. So in other words, that's how it will be with anybody who is, is more enamored with something else. And it doesn't matter what it is, how good or bad it might be, more than you are with God. That's important. So where are you? This is the moment where you have a little personal reflection. Okay, so where, where am I? Take a serious, honest look at your life and ask yourself, where do I position things? Where do I position people? However important, again, I'll probably say that 10 more times, however important they might be. Is God above those things? Is God above those people? Or is God below those things or those people? You are worthy to worship when God is above those things, not when God is below those things. You're missing it at that point. God has always got to be above. No idols. Well, the second thing I think that Jesus really had on his heart was no hypocrisy. Look at Mark chapter 7. No hypocrisy. So I'm going to begin reading here in verse 1. Short story, but let me, let me read it to you. The Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus and saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were defiled or unclean, some versions might say. That is unwashed. The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they don't eat unless they wash, and they observe many other traditions, such as the washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. So the Pharisees and the teachers of the law asked Jesus, hey, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with defiled hands? He replied, you know, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. As it is written... These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are, but, are, are merely human rules or rules taught by men. You've let go of the commands of God and are holding on to human traditions. And he continued, you have a fine way. I love the way he just says, you know what? Let me, let me, let me tell you a little story here. You have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe their own traditions. Boy, they, they, they never should have opened up this can of worms, but they, they did. You have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. For Moses said, honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses their father or mother is to be put to death. But now you say that if anyone declares uh, that what might have been used to help their father or mother is Corbin, that is a gift or just as devoted to God, then you no longer let 
them do anything for their father or mother. Thus, you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you've handed down, and you do many things like that. I mean, that's a, that's a lot right there. If there was one thing that Jesus hit over and over and over again, it was hypocrisy. I mean, he had, he had very little to no tolerance for it. And in this example, he specifically hits hypocrisy and worship. I mean, the people were all up in arms about the, the proper washing of their, their, their hands. And, but it was more than just that, right? It was, you know, for that matter, cups, pitchers, kettles. And the crazy thing, if you, if you look at the footnote, it says, and dining couches. It does. Dining couches. I mean, could you imagine trying to properly wash a dining couch? But they were really worried about how we do that. That was like the big deal. <laughs> and they were furious that Jesus' disciples didn't wash their hands, cups, pitchers, kettles, and dining couches properly. I mean, that was like, they're like, how can, you, how can you put up with this Jesus? They were furious. They thought, man, man, Jesus, your disciples are just flat missing it. And Jesus comes right back at them with a healthy dose of, dose of reality. He says, you know what? Isaiah was right. I knew it. You should have known it. You know, and in verse 68, it's like, man, you're just giving lip service. You're worshiping in vain. It's pointless. It's useless. Why do you even do it? Because it's not accomplishing anything. In fact, it's hurting way more than it's helping. And so what does he say in that little six to eight section? He says, no, no, no. Let me tell you something. They're not missing it. You're missing it. You are deceived. You are not getting it. And he points to an example that they could probably all connect with. And it's this practice of Corbin. So in the law, it was required that you take care of your parents when they get older. Right? They took care of you when you were a kid. So as they age and get to a point where they're not able to care for themselves, then you have to take care of them. Maybe you invite them into your home or you, 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 do, you live in their home or, or, or whatever. However, I'm going to remind my kids of that pretty soon. <laughs> By the way, I, I, I get that we're not still in the law, but this is just a really good thing to do, but we'll see. But anyway, so this practice was something that they felt responsible for, but they didn't like it. It's like, wait a minute, this is going to be a real, you know, drag on my lifestyle. I don't want to take care of, you know, mom and dad when they're old and it's going to be expensive and it's going to be inconvenient. So they devised this practice known as Corbin, where they made a, a financial uh, contribution to the temple, a one-time big offering. And that, this Corbin, this gift devoted to God, absolved them from their responsibility of taking care of their parents. That's why it says, look, whatever help you might have gotten from us, you know, I paid that debt when I wrote the check to the temple. So, sorry, Mom. Sorry, Dad. You're, you're on your own. Good, good luck. And Jesus is like, what? Like, you think that's good? You think that's okay to do? What do you, you're like giving me a hard time because my guys didn't wash their hands the right way. And, and this is what you do. That really bothered him. But you know what really got under Jesus' skin? is that they passed this off as worship. Like their, their conscience was clear. Hey, I'm, I'm like doing the right thing before God. And, and what really I think got Jesus annoyed was like, look, it's not just this. 
Like, you do many things like this. This is like your, this is your M.O. when it comes to worshiping God. But I think the biggest problem for Jesus was that this, this false worship, this hypocrisy, was obliterating the word of God. You nullify the word of God. They were obliterating the word of God and, and rendering it useless. It was like, if you're not going to do what it says, why are you reading it? Jesus is saying, we're going to do something different now. So we're going we're to redefine worship, guys. He, he's saying, no more lip service. If you're going to worship in the truth and the spirit, then you have to be the real deal. That's a really good thing for us to consider. Are we honoring God by actually holding to and living by the word of God? Or are we doing what's easy and convenient? Now, this is, this is another self-reflection moment, but you can do this later. You go home and you look at yourself in the mirror, right? And you ask yourself, honestly, am I the real deal? Am I the real deal? Am I worthy to worship? Not perfect, because you never will be. Not flawless. Not, you know, well, am, I, am I better than the next person? Who cares? Doesn't, that doesn't matter. Not perfect, not flawless, but genuine. Making every effort to be a living, breathing disciple of Jesus Christ. No lip service. No church face. We know what church face is, right? Oh, yeah, we know what church face is. We know... We know what to say, how to look, how to act when we, when we walk through that door, right? No, no, let's, let's, let's stop that. That's, that's what the Pharisees and the teachers of the law did. They, they had their church face, right? They would, they'd look really good, but all the stuff that Jesus just talked about, that's what was really going on below the surface. So Jesus is saying no church face, just the real deal. No hypocrisy. That, brothers and sisters, is worthy to worship. We'll look at one more. No holding back. Look over at Matthew chapter 25. We'll get there in just a moment. No holding back. You know, throughout, throughout his life, Jesus made several things really clear, but one thing that was crystal clear is that worshiping God was never to be half-hearted. It was, it was, it was done in a way where you, you hold nothing back. It was all or nothing. When asked what the greatest commandment was, what did Jesus say? He didn't say, go out and do this thing, whatever that thing might be. He said, oh, you want to know what's number one? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. That was like paramount. And then he goes on to say, all the law and the prophets, basically everything hangs on that. If you don't love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, forget about doing anything else because you know what? It won't matter. So that was like paramount to Jesus. No holding back. Now, for the Jews in Jesus' day, the common question, whether it was actually asked or not, but I think it was understood, is how much is enough? Because they were really good at figuring out like, all right, so where do we need to go because we don't want to do any more than we need to. How much is enough? Where, where can we cap it? 
and, and, and still be like okay with, you know, within the law. There was a minimal effort often made with a, a pretty minimal return. But part of Jesus redefining worship was taking that, that greatest commandment we just looked at and expecting his disciples to actually do it, to actually live it. Yes, really put God above everything else and love with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Wholehearted worship. What does that look like? Is, is this wholehearted worship the exact same for, say, Dexter and Conrad or Cheryl and Octavia or for John and, and Greg or for, for Ralph and, you know, Lamisha? I mean, is it, is it like exactly the same? Well, yes and no. That's a really safe answer, isn't it? Don't, don't you love it when you can answer a question with yes and no? But when you do that, you have to explain yourself. So, okay, so yes, it's the same standard, same expectations, same God, but it doesn't necessarily always look the same. Because depending on where you are in life, and, and let's face it, we can all be all over the map, right? <laughs> you can be all over the map in one day. <laughs> I mean, seriously, you can wake up in the morning and be one place. The afternoon, it's like, whoa, like, where, where'd that train come from? And then, like, in a different place by the evening. Or it can stretch out over weeks, months, years, whatever. So we can, unfortunately, we can be all over the place. And so depending on where we are at the moment, what we're going through, what we're dealing with, our individual worship might look a little different. It may take on a different form. You know, sometimes it's more joyful than others. Sometimes it's more reflective. Sometimes it's more painful. Sometimes it's more jubilant. I mean, it's, it's, it can be very different depending on where we are. And that's okay if it's sincere and from the heart, in the spirit, and in truth, and it's genuine. If that's the case, it's an acceptable offering to our holy God. Now, look at Matthew 25. I'm not going to read the whole thing here. It's long. I don't even need to. But I'm going to read just like a couple of snippets from it. Look at verse 14. Again, it will be like, and he's talking about the kingdom of God, if you were to go prior to that. Again, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them. To one he gave five bags of gold, to another two bags, to another one bag, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. The man who had received five bags of gold when at once put his money to work, gained five more. Uh, so also the one with the two bags of gold gained two more. But the man who had received the one bag went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. What comes right after that is just an explanation. Basically, it's like, you know, a couple of them did really well. They, they took what God gave them, and they, they reinvested it. And they made out great. Everybody was happy. God was happy. They were happy. It was a good situation. One guy didn't quite uh, end up in, in, a, in a great situation. He, he did, the, 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 one, the one bad guy didn't do the right thing. Jump down to verse 24. Then the man who had received the one bag of gold came. Master, he said, look, I know you're a hard man. Harvesting where you've not sown, gathering where you've not scattered seed. I mean, he's trying to like, you, you, you can tell he already knows he's in trouble. And he's trying to like, hey, look, you know, let, 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 let me just explain kind of how we did this. And, you know, he's digging, it. He's digging himself in deeper. But anyway... That's what he does. You know, scattering where you've not scattered seeds. So look, I was afraid. 
So I went out and I hid your gold in the ground. See, here's what belongs to you. He actually thinks, he's convinced himself, maybe I am okay. His master replied, you wicked, lazy servant. He knew at this point he wasn't. So you knew that I harvest where I've not sown and, and gather where I've not scattered seed. Well, then you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. So take the bag of gold from him and give it to the one who has 10 bags. For whoever has will be given more and he'll have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. And throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Yeah, that, this, this goes south really fast. <laughs> what he thought was going to be like, okay, I, whew, I made it through. No, he didn't make it through. It did, not go, it did not end well for him. What does this have to do with worship? We've all been entrusted with the kingdom of God, right? So we don't own it. We don't run it. But, but God's entrusted us with this kingdom of God. And the most important part of our experience in the kingdom of God is our worship with God. You know, as Jesus said, everything hangs on that. So when we look at this question, how much is enough? How much do I need to do? How much worship, how much whatever it is, is enough? The answer is simple. Enough is when it's everything you've got. You can't quantify it any other way. It's when it's everything you've got. We've all been given different skills, talents, uh, interests. We've all been different, given, given strengths, uh, different strengths, different abilities. When your life is fully invested with God, whether it's one bag of gold or five bags of gold, it doesn't matter. When you're fully invested with God, you are worthy to worship. Because that's what God is looking for. As we close out here, it's important to remember, worthy to worship is less a reflection on who we are. It's much more a reflection on who God is and how we present ourselves to our holy God. No idols, no hypocrisy, and no holding back. Amen. Thanks. This has been an episode of the Southern Connecticut Church of Christ podcast. Please subscribe so you can keep up to date with the latest podcast.